secret discussions taking place between me and Sam. Um, I'll let you in know what it was. It was, uh, we were supposed to take offering right there, but I don't want to do it right now. Um, so it's, do not forget <laughs> to take offering. Uh, it's, it's, so, it's, it's so funny. Um, Garlic Festival is, is a funny weekend because uh, Gilroy people either love it or hate it. And so a lot of people go to the Garlic Festival and then a lot of people are just so, like so bitter against it. We always know church attendance is low on Garlic. Like, it's super low right now. And it's like, I know people aren't at Garlic Festival. Gilroy people are just like, I'm not going out on Garlic Festival weekend. I'm not going out. It's crazy. It's, it, this is a 9 a.m. service. The crazy drunkards aren't out at the 9 a.m. Garlic Festival service. But it's just, it's a mentality. It's like, if you're a longtime Gilroy and you just got like bitterness built up, I'm not going out Garlic Festival weekend. I'm not risking my kids' lives. It's not worth it. Okay. Yeah. That's... You, you know, it's, it's sort of funny because it's, it's true. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, we have a kind of a different, unique Sunday today, um, but I want to just talk about a few things before we get started. Uh, reminder, next week we start our, our emphasis on apologetics, an entire month of apologetics. If you don't know what apologetics is, it comes from a Greek word, apologia. It means defense. Um, so we're talking about, for a month, an intellectual defense of Christianity and its truth claims. Also in August, we have our Global Leadership Summit taking place, August 10th and 11th. After the apologetic series, we're going to start a short, month-long series on the names of God, particularly uh, Hebrew names that are used in the Old Testament for God. Looking forward to that. And then after that series, a uh, sermon series that I'm most excited about, uh, I haven't been this excited about entering into um, a sermon series for quite some time, the book of Isaiah. Extremely important book. I think it's going to be incredible for our church to journey through that. We'll be there for quite some time. Uh, and then today, in September, there's a Sunday called Freedom Sunday, and it's a Sunday that many churches use to talk about the issues of human slavery and sex trafficking. And so we have a lot of things going on in September that it won't work in our calendar, so we're doing it uh, today, pushing it forward in this sort of one-week break week between we have apologetics and um, our series in First John. So fair warning, uh, usually this 9 a.m. service doesn't have uh, many chil- children or young people in it, usually one or two, but the content of today is, is, is heavy, it's deep, it's emotionally difficult, but uh, if you have children with you, at a certain point you're going to see a couple of videos. At that point, there may be about a 10-minute interval that you feel the content is not appropriate for your children. But um, I want to have our church know the types of evil that are out there. I don't want to be a church that hides their eyes from the evil of the world. Um, the greatest problems in the world are the church's problems because we are the body of Christ, and the body of Christ should be about the reconciliation of all things back to God the Father through His Son. And so we want to deal with these issues and deal with them uh, in a way that doesn't try to sanitize or look over some of the stuff the world has to be wrestling with. So, in order to understand this issue of human slavery, trafficking, the bondage of image bearers, we have to go back to the very beginning and see 
God's original intent and design for how people, image bearers, should function in the world. So let's dig right in. Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Super important word here, image. What does it mean for human beings to be created in the image of God? Most of the time, most people, uh, by default, we sort of take 21st century uh, meanings and definitions for words and insert them into a very ancient document. The book of Genesis an ancient Near Eastern text. And so when modern people say, you're made in the image of somebody, we usually think it means like, oh, we have arms and legs and a face, so God has to have a body and arms and legs or face, or he kind of looks like human beings, or there's shared characteristics between the two. And that's actually not what is going on here. God doesn't have a body. He is spirit. He's not made of flesh or bones. But what's important for us to understand is what exactly is meant by image in the world the Bible was written in. The word image in Genesis and for the entirety of the whole Old Testament is a word that's used for idols. So if you were to go into a pagan temple and see an idol, that idol is the image of the deity, and they functioned in a particular manner. Let's say you're in a, in a, a, a city in the ancient world, and you build a, a temple, and you dedicate it to Artemis, this female goddess. You, you make the temple beautiful. The architecture is great. Everything is set up, and when it's all ready to go, you're ready to dedicate the temple to Artemis. At the dedication ceremony, that is when you would bring in the image, the idol, and you would put it in the most holy place in the temple. And it was a way to communicate to the people in that temple that although Artemis is not physically here, Artemis is not physically present, her image is here. Her representative and representation is here, which means the will of Artemis will be done in this temple, even though we know she is not physically present. Idols and images were the representation of the deity. Um, they meant that Artemis's will will be done in this temple, and usually in this region or city, even though we can't see or touch her. In the first century Roman world, Caesar did the same thing as well. Caesar would set up statues of himself at the corners of his empire. It was a way to tell people that although Caesar's way back in Italy, in the capital city, Rome's empire extends to these regions, and Caesar's will, rule, and law will be executed in these far reaches of the empire, even though he's not physically present. Domitian did this on, uh, in Spain. There was a giant statue of one of the Caesars, Domitian, so that when sailors would come in, the first thing they would see when they see land is this giant statue of the Roman emperor. Again, it's a way of saying, even though Caesar is not here, his representatives are and his will will be done here. Which takes us back to Genesis. What is the point of Genesis 1.27? God is putting his image bearers into creation so that they do and execute the will of God on earth as he does in heaven. This is a massive biblical theme that's so overlooked. Image bearers do the work and will of God here on earth as it is done in heaven. Now that logic is immediately unfolded in the very next verse. You see it in Genesis 1.28. After God creates these image bearers, he gives them some commands. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. First thing to note, be fruitful and multiply. First commands in Scripture. Why does God want human beings, image bearers, to be fruitful, to multiply, to cover the face of the earth? From the beginning... God's intent was not that there would just be two image bearers, Adam and Eve, in a garden paradise doing his will. The intent is that the whole of God's good creation is flooded with image bearers doing his will, his work, his way on earth as he does in heaven. The goal was not just a garden in an isolated location. It was a garden earth, a paradise of image bearers doing the work and will of God. That's being fruitful and multiplying is all about. And then immediately it goes on to this idea of of representation and, and doing the will and work. It says that human beings should subdue and have dominion. The word subdue, kabash in Hebrew, it's it sometimes takes a negative tone. Actually, a lot of times takes a negative tone. Um, it means, yes, to subdue, but to, to subjugate, to bring into slavery sometimes what it means. And so, it's again, it's communicating this idea that human beings are supposed to rule over creation in a way that reflects the glory and goodness of God. Now, Genesis will let this unfold in the next several chapters, but human beings were meant to subdue and have dominion. When human beings do not subdue and have dominion, sin will subdue and have dominion over the human. This is critical. Human beings were meant to manage and to rule earth in a way that reflects the glory and goodness of God. When we fail in image-bearing, when we fail in our sacred vocation, we don't rule over sin. Sin rules over us. And if you're familiar with the story, you've been a Christian for quite some time, that's exactly what happened. Adam and Eve and the rest of the book of Genesis tell the story of the image bearers failing, and rather than ruling over sin, sin ruling over the human being. This is brought to like a attention with a spotlight in the immediate story after Adam and Eve, the story of their children, Cain and Abel. Right before, um, if, if, if you're unfamiliar with the story, uh, two brothers... Cain kills his brother Abel. There's, there's murder. It's the first murder in the Bible. Um, but right before he murders him, Genesis 4, 6 through 7 records this. The Lord said to Cain, because Cain's all angry about, you read the backstory on your own time, but he's angry. Cranky older brother. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Now here's, here's the important part. Speaking of sin, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Human beings either rule over it or sin rules over them. And Genesis, again, is the story of human beings failing in their vocation, in their image-bearing duties, and in turn, Satan's sin and death ruling over them. That's what the Cain and Abel story is about. After this, there's a story about a polygamous murderer named Lamech. That's what that story is about. There's the Tower of Babel incident. There's the flood story, the flood event. All of those things are showing how sin is ruling over humanity. Now, right at the beginning of the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the first five books, God gives Israel law. It's called Torah. And in the law, 
Um, God sets up rules and regulations, all these things. And the point of it is so that when Israel, God's people, does these things, Israel will flourish and the world will flourish. When human, humans, image bearers, obey God's law, the world is a better place. God doesn't set up laws to be restrictive. He sets up laws so human beings flourish. It's for our benefit. Now, right in the center of this law is the idea that human beings, image bearers, should love God first and foremost. It's sort of strange because it's the most important command, but it's not like when you teach children, like the most important things you repeat like 50 times. It's mentioned several times, but it's not like it's repeated over and over again. But the heart of all of God's law is found in Deuteronomy 6, 4. You, you, you need to acknowledge the, the one true God and then love him with the sum total of your being. Now, the reason why this is important is because God's law is tied up in a braid with the command to love God. And when human beings, image bearers, love God, they get that right. You get the first command right. The kind of byproduct and outpouring of that is obedience to God's law. This was an emphasis in 1 John. And the byproduct of human beings being obedient to God's law is human flourishing. The world becomes a better place. When humans fail to love God, they fail to obey God's law, and the world suffers for it. There is more greed, there is more oppression, there is more abuse. And that's why all throughout the Old Testament, there is command after command after command for human beings to do justice, to love mercy, to take care of the oppressed, to look after the widow, to take care of the fatherless, the orphan. There's scripture after scripture after scripture telling human beings, you've got to do this. You've got to look after the world's most vulnerable. And then again and again and again, when you see those scriptures appearing, they're they're bound up with the idea of walking and loving, walking with and loving your God. Let me show you just a few of the, the most like popular verses for this. Isaiah 1:17. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. When we get to our series in Isaiah in October, we're gonna jump into this, but for now, there's some context to this. Why is God telling Israel in the book of Isaiah to seek justice, to defend the oppressed, to look after the fatherless, to plead the case of the widow? Because it's not happening, and there's a root reason why it's happening. The reason, according to Isaiah chapter 1, is that Israel, God's people, have, has forgotten their maker. And, and that's how the logic works. You forget your maker, and then society, the moral fabric of society, begins to unravel. You forget your proper place before God, your love of God, and the moral fabric of a culture and society begins to unravel. And then, who's the first, who is the first to suffer when the moral fabric of a culture falls apart? Who is always the first? It is always the most vulnerable. It's women and children. They're the first ones to suffer. And there's men who suffer as well, but the first to always suffer are the most vulnerable in societies, and that's usually children and women, particularly widows, women, or unmarried women, especially true of the ancient world. Micah 6.8, another super famous verse. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Again, the emphasis, do justice, be kind. Put all this stuff as an attention point but the last line, walk humbly with your God. It's always tied together. You can't just go around being nice. It doesn't work that way. 
There's a love of God in the vertical that, that extends to the horizontal in obedience to him. One more. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Again, last one, but just to, to emphasize the point. When you, when you love God, you'll do the image-bearing thing right. When you look at someone who's not doing the image-bearing thing right, the person who is taking advantage of, of the poor, the needy, and the vulnerable, it's not just an, an offense to the image-bearer, it's an offense to God. You insult the poor man, you insult God himself. By the way, um, that may seem like not a big deal to you, but trust me, if you look through history and the world religions and the various different kind of practices from the beginning of the kind of our first records of human history, it is a crazy radical idea for a religion to say that when you insult the poor man, you insult God himself. That is, that, that is a radical idea. Unique, beautiful, amazing all of this leads us to, to what, what we're talking about today. Human suffering. God designed us as image bearers. We're supposed to do his will on earth as it is in heaven. When we love him and we commit to our vocation as image bearers, human beings flourish and the world is a better place. But, but we all know today that there is immense human suffering. I'm talking heavy human suffering. Um... I'm uh, currently reading a bunch. I, I, I'll get obsessed about a certain topic and I'll read and study it. And right now, I'm looking at the, the history of, of kind of Russia between uh, early 1900s to about 1950, 1960s, just the kind of collapse of their monarchy and, and, and their transition into communism and the evils that took place. Um, it is un... You can't even articulate it the type of evil that human beings have done to other human beings, not just by accident or unintentional, but like the systematic, intentional, thought-out torture that we have committed to other, to other human beings, it's, uh, it, uh, it, it wrecks you on an emotional level. And it, it, I, so you know I'm so kind of like messed up by, by these things and actually doing the research for this week has kind of jacked with my brain and my heart that I'm kind of even a little emotionally distant from it right now because it's, it's so overwhelmingly painful to read and to watch. Um, today is Freedom Sunday, like I said, and uh, it's a day where, well, Freedom Sunday is really taking place in September, but we're doing it today. Um, it's a day where churches, some churches, not all churches, not enough churches will talk about one of, if not the greatest um, evil that's taking place in, in the world today. It's the issue of human slavery, human trafficking. It's where people um, who are made to be in God's image are made into a possession, a, a commodity, a good to be bought and sold. And so what most people don't realize is that there's 45 million slaves today. That's actually more slaves than there has ever been in human history. Uh, modern people, we like to pride ourselves. We've done so much. We've, we've freed the world of evil. There's probably a few countries here and there that still practice these things. No, no. There are more slaves today than at any other point in human history, and one in four of those slaves is a child. And so uh, statistics often are just statistics, but I want to put, put some flesh and blood on this for you. So 
There's an organization called the International Justice Mission. We are now going to be, as a church, financially supporting this organization, and they are probably the most well-known and best organization fighting uh, human slavery and sex trafficking in the world today. And they, they have a, a sh couple short videos that I want to show you today because I want you to, to put flesh and blood on this. It's not just numbers. 45 million is just a statistic, but when you see the face of another image bearer in a situation, it becomes different and it becomes real. So this is a video done by the International Justice Mission talking about the issue of human slavery. You're working 14, 18 hour days with very little sleep, no freedom. Dignity is taken away from them and, and that's something nobody should have to endure. We had a number of years ago, two of the model laborers escaped from a facility and they were tracked down by the owners of the facility and, and brought back and as a punishment for what they had done, their hands were chopped off. We would go to the government officers and we'd say, sir, there is a bonded labor case. And almost always the response was, there is no bonded labor in my area. What are you talking? How much? 30? Yeah, yeah, my friend. Richira, there's a girl who's very afraid. Almost unable to walk. This is Kumar. He was abandoned by his mother, and his father was suddenly killed. Orphaned and alone, he was accountable for his parents' debts. And at just seven years old, he was forced into slavery. Kumar remembers a day where he was so ill he couldn't get out of bed. Immediately, his owner came looking for him. Kumar was trapped by debt and a slave owner who beat him continuously. He, like so many, had no remaining hope for a way out. Again, the, the reason why human slavery is such an affront to God is because it takes another image bearer, someone who is a representation, a, represent, a representative who's put on earth to do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven, and it makes them a commodity, it makes them a product, it makes them something to be owned. And they are treated horribly, children working from sunup to sundown, no breaks, and, and as a church, and I know it's difficult because oftentimes, uh, especially maybe if you're, you're, you're new here, you, you want to come to a church and, and you want to hear like some uplifting message with, with some encouragement because you've had a tough week. But here is the thing. 
if the church turns a blind eye to this stuff, if the church can't look evil in the eye, then we might as well stop calling ourselves church. Church is the body of Christ here to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. God hates these things. He despises it. And if the church can just turn away, well, we might as well not call ourselves body of Christ church anymore. The church can look evil in the eye and say, yes, this is evil. Yes, we have fear. Yes, this is a massive problem. But greater who is in us than he who is in the world. And we believe our Jesus has something to say about these issues. I'm going to show you another video. Um, and again, if you have, have children in the room, this might not be appropriate. It's another uh, video about the work of International Justice Mission, but in particular with the issue of sex trafficking. Um, so you could, if, if you feel it's inappropriate, you could just leave when the video starts or right now, and come back in five minutes. Um, but here is um, the, the truth. Credible and conservative estimates of global sex trafficking indicate that there are between 4.2 million and 11.6 million people held in forced commercial sexual exploitation. Exploitation. Um, the vast majority of these people are young girls. There's young boys and, and older women, but the vast majority of them are young women. And again, don't want to just put um, statistics up. I want to want you to see video. Uh, this is an old, old video. It's, it's kind of grainy. It's hard to see. It's about 15 years old, but it was off of a documentary that Dateline 15 years ago did with the International Justice Mission. The reason why I'm showing you this one is because you can YouTube and watch the whole documentary on your own time. It's about 45 minutes. The documentary is called Children for Sale, Dateline International Justice Mission. You can watch it on your own, but, but I want you to see and understand the type of evil that's in this world. News in depth tonight, a rare glimpse into a world both horrible and heartbreaking. Cambodia has long been known for its killing fields, where the Khmer Rouge regime murdered more than a million citizens. Today, it has another rather open secret, child prostitution and a market for it. From Australia, Europe, and the U.S., people who flock there to purchase sex from the youngest of the young. Here is some of what NBC's Chris Hansen has uncovered in a Dateline NBC investigation. Walk up to any motorbike taxi driver in the Cambodian capital, Phnom Penh, as we did recently with our hidden cameras, and he'll tell you where to find girls for sale. Very young girls. That may be an Yes, no problem. Yeah, no problem in Cambodia. He told us to take a short ride to a village on the outskirts of Phnom Penh. Dateline went there recently with investigators from a human rights group posing as sex tourists. Teenage pimps lead us through a maze of shacks into a back room filled with girls not even 12, as young as five. Just some of the thousands of children, experts say, are forced into the Cambodian sex trade. These girls say they're nine and 10 and offer to perform oral sex. One girl, how much? No, you doing over here? No, 30 and two girls? That's 60 American dollars. Big money in a country where at least a third of the population lives on less than 45 cents a day. But poverty is no excuse for forcing children into prostitution, says Gary Haugen, who runs a U.S.-based human rights group 
called the International Justice Mission. This is the kind of brutal ugliness that is sort of hard to open your eyes to, but once you do, I think as a human being, you've got to take responsibility for it. Haugen, a former federal prosecutor, has a staff of lawyers and former detectives who gather evidence of abuses, including sex trafficking. You basically run a sting operation. Sure. The undercover mission we documented led to police raids and a dozen or more suspected pimps arrested. More than three dozen girls were set free from the brothels. Many are now in shelters where social workers are trying to help them rediscover their childhoods lost to Cambodia's sex trade. Chris Hansen, NBC News. It is a rough business and it's not over. Chris Hansen's Dateline investigation is ongoing. There will be more on this story in the coming weeks and months. If you're, if you're like me, um, this stuff is, is gut-wrenching to you. It, it, cha it, it challenges you. It's, it's an existential crisis. You go, how, how can this be going on, God? How can you be allowing this type of evil? And again, it's way easier just, just to, to not think about this stuff. But it's out there. And these are, these are children. These are people whom God loves. These are people who are made in his image. And it's so easy just to settle for thinking about easy things. But again, God has something to say about this. And his response has been the cross and his body. His people doing his will as image bearers on earth as it is in heaven. And make no mistake about this, God hates this. He despises it. And if you want justice to pour down, know that God is merciful and he's waiting for all people to repent. But there will come a day where people like this who do these things, who refuse to repent, they will beg for the rocks and caves to fall on them because the wrath of Jesus will be so powerful to strike fear into them. They would rather die than face Jesus. I'm not just making that up. That's an exact quote from Revelation. Men will cry out wishing rocks to fall on them because of the wrath of the Lamb. There will come a day where God does away with this. But until that day, the church has work to do. We are his body, the body of Christ, and it means something. The first sermon that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Luke is incredible. Luke records this. And he came, Jesus, to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. In other words, Jesus is going to go preach a sermon. He was going to preach from Isaiah. And this is what the text says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke tells us after he reads this, he folds up the scroll and says, today this is fulfilled. In other words, this is about me. Jesus is saying this is his job description. And the reason why this is so incredibly important is Jesus doesn't just say, I've come down to earth and I have this message that if you believe in me, you get to go to heaven when you die. Now, that's a very important component. Believe me, eternity matters. It's of utmost importance. But Jesus doesn't just allow people to exist on earth in their suffering and their anguish. That's what bringing his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven is all about. So in Jesus' job description, he says, I've come to proclaim good news, but I'm also here to liberate the captives. 
to give sight to the blind, to bring liberty, freedom to those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' job description in the first sermon he gives includes the preaching of the gospel, but it also includes doing God's business on earth, freeing the captive, looking out for the fatherless, the widow, the orphan. These things matter because they're at the center of the heart of God the Father, and God the Son comes to do the mission of the Father. Now, because of this rich tradition of these verses in the Old Testament, because of the mission of Jesus, the very first Christians cared about these things. They were about preaching the gospel, which is always, trust me on this, the, the proclamation of God's word is of as, as first importance, always. But they also said, we're not just going to allow human beings, image bearers, to suffer in this place. We're going to show them the love of the Father here, now, in the present, on, in the presence, on, on earth. And so the early church was, was known, and we have documents from the first, second, third century of both, both Christian and non-Christian documents, by the way, that talk about how the early church would, would feed the poor, not just the poor in their own community, but the, the, the people who weren't Christian, how they would help women transition out of lifestyles that they wanted to get out of, prostitution, etc., that they would sometimes try to buy slaves out. We, we have documents of them going out and trying to save babies who had been abandoned. I've talked about this before, but a common practice in the Roman Empire was infanticide. Say you have a newborn baby and there's something wrong with it, one shape or one form or another, or maybe it's just a girl and you didn't want a girl. What you would do is you'd go out in the middle of the night and leave the newborn baby in, in the countryside to die. And very common practice, and what would happen is that baby... Could, could have a number of things happen to it. It would, it would die of, of freezing to death. It would die of starvation. Animals or wolves would get to it or a different type of animal and wolf would get to it. And the, the slave owners and the broth owners would find the baby and raise it to be a slave or a sex slave. And the early church, the first Christians, would go out in the night to find these babies, to save them and adopt them and to say, God the Father has adopted us into his family and out of the love he's shown us, we extend to you and we're going to adopt you into our own. The early church would go out into the darkness and listen for the cries. And when they heard the cries, they went after them. Let me say that again. The first followers of Jesus went into the darkness and listened for the cries of the hurting and the oppressed. And when they heard them, they did something. This is our tradition. This is who we are as a people. This is what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. This, this isn't just side issues or, or things for some people to care about. It has to do with who we are as human beings, image bearers. It's our human vocation. It's our job description. Now, I thought about um, making a list of like, here's seven practical ways that we could respond to sex trafficking, human slavery, and, and, and I, you know, you can become a, a more responsible consumer, know what you're buying, know what you contribute to, and all of those are good things, but you can Google that, and you can come up with lists. But outside of the practical things to do, there is, there's one massive thing that every single person in this room wrestles with. It's what I wrestle with and struggle with, and it's what you wrestle and struggle with. In our context, living in such a, a, a great place, 
I know it's real trendy to, to act like America's so bad, but you gotta understand, you have food right now and you got a roof over your head. You have access to clean drinking water, something billions of people don't. You get to drink water. The number one thing that's holding back the church in this issue is our desire to have a good life. It's our desire to have a good life over and against seeking first the kingdom of God. Every single one of us is drawn just to build a life that's as comfortable and easy as possible for us. In other words, we'd live like this life matters more than eternity. We live in such a way I mean, and if you, if you disagree, look at, look at how we spend our money. Look how I spend my money. Look how I spend my time. I'm saying this to you as a pastor. We live as if this life weighs more than the life to come. And because of that, we spend our lives trying to make the nicest, easiest, most comfortable existence we can for ourselves. Rather than saying, whatever blessings God has given me in this life, I want to use them sacrificially to give a better life to people who are in misery and agony. And it starts with your money, it starts with your time, it starts with, with your heart and how, what, what you desire. Christians are commanded to seek first his kingdom, not an easy, comfortable life here and now. Now, if you have an easy, comfortable life, that, you don't feel guilty about that, not at all. And you don't say, oh, how can I hurt myself more? And that's nonsense. What you tell yourself is, how can I use the abundant blessings that God has given me to do his kingdom work, to be an image bearer? How can I give more away? How can I help more? But we desire the good life more than we desire his kingdom. There's another wicked thing that creeps in. Is modern people do an amazing job at compartmentalizing things. We have an uncanny ability to put stuff in isolated boxes. So most of us look at evils like sex trafficking and go, wow, this is so incredibly evil. I can't believe this is going on. And we detach it and divorce it from all the things that we participate in. So let me give you an example. If you are partaking in pornography, you are actively contributing to the same satanic scheme and strategy that funds and fuels sex trafficking. And I know you don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it. I don't like it because statistics say if you're a man in America, you are wrestling with stuff because everywhere there's images and thoughts and temptations. When you do this stuff, you have to realize the same spiritual realities, the same satanic realities that are behind the worst and most vile sexual crimes on the face of the earth, those are the same satanic realities and schemes and strategies at work in your life. Americans compartmentalize everything. There is a web and it's all connected. Trust me, there is someone called the evil one at work and at play constructing these massive strategies. And yes, what you're doing isn't as bad as visiting the brothel in Cambodia. It's not. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying everything's connected. We're so easy to compartmentalize our sins and downplay what we're doing. And I know this is incredibly convicting because men and women are, are wrestling and struggling with, with pornography it's affecting us all. It's all of us. 
how, how we spend our money is connected with these issues. In one sense, yeah, we, we do need to become more wise consumers. There, there, there are products that we buy that are contributing to evils in the world. And no, you can't be perfect, because whenever someone talks about trying to be like a smarter consumer, they, they go, well, well, what shoes do you have on? What, what toothpaste do you use? You, you can't be per- Look, I got it, Mr. Cynical. You, you can't be perfect. You can't completely absolve yourself from contributing to human evil, but you, you can do better than you are doing today. You could say, can I spend my money more wisely? Can, can, can the entertainment I watch be, be better for my eyes and my heart? Could the stuff I look on my computer screen be better for my heart and my marriage? And all of that is contributing either to God's kingdom or someone else's kingdom. It's all connected. Trust me on this. There's one other video I want to show you. Um, And it's a more positive one because it shows what happens when Christians take God's kingdom seriously and what we can do when, when we contribute to to fixing the world's greatest, greatest problems. This is some of the follow-up work that the International Justice Mission did with that young boy you were introduced to earlier named Kumar. IJM discovered the horrific conditions in the brick factory where Kumar and others were being forced to work against their will. And, based on their undercover video evidence, local government authorities and police came alongside IJM to conduct a rescue operation. The more and more we are doing these rescues, people are getting aware that people are being abused, there is bonded labor, there is trafficking. Also, the law is going to take its course as well as perpetrators go behind. When the team arrived in the morning and entered the brick factory, 15 men, women, and children were rescued and given their freedom back. Then, they were each given a certificate to prove that they no longer owe any debts to their former owner. for Kumar. After being rescued, IJM placed Kumar in their aftercare program to heal. You'd ask him a question anytime, no matter what, and he would say, the one thing I want to do is I want to study. He was clear about that. And then they enrolled him in school for the first time. Today, he is studying to be a social worker to help those still suffering like he did. for that lost sheep, that girl that's being abused, that widow who's been run out of her home. And we will search for her 
until we find her. That's how our Father has loved us. That's how we are called to love others. Not to search for them until we've satisfied ourselves. Not to search for them until it gets really hard. But to go after them until we find them. To be relentless in our love. There's a line in there where the, 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 there's a group of people who are just freed and it says, they are handed a certificate to prove that they no longer owe any of their former debts. That is a, a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are handed a certificate to say and to prove you no longer owe any of your former debts. See, God is like a shepherd, and even if 99 sheep are safe, he is unrelentless in his pursuit of the lost one. And if you're a Christian here today, it is because God was relentless in his pursuit of you. And, and, and here is the massive truth. Behind all slavery, behind all forms of human bondage, there is, there is the greater slavery of them all. There is a slavery that creates all forms of and institutions of human slavery. It's the fact that human beings are in slavery to this thing called sin. See, from the beginning, it was either human beings subdue and rule over sin, or sin will rule over and subdue human beings. And the story of our history as a people is the story of every last one of us failing and being subdued and put into slavery to sin. But God himself came, becoming a slave to die the slave's death on the cross. And in a weird, bizarre, paradoxical exchange, he ransoms, he pays our debts, takes us out of the hands of Satan's sins and death, and frees us. But he doesn't just free us to sit around and rejoice. He frees us to rejoice in what he's done in our lives and then mirror the heart of the Father and go out looking for the lost sheep. The early church went into the darkness and listened for the cries of the oppressed. And when they heard, they did something about it. There is a slavery behind human slavery, a slavery behind sex trafficking, a slavery behind all forms of, of human evil. And it's sin. And Christ definitively crushed it at the cross. And if you're here today, you have something to be thankful and grateful about, but you also have something in your gut that tells me I gotta be about my father's business. Christians seek first his kingdom, not because the good life is so good. Christians seek first his kingdom because his kingdom is so much more soul-satisfying, soul-quenching, pleasing to the human experience. His kingdom is better than anything this, this broken world can offer. And when we seek first his kingdom, you get the good life thrown in because knowing him is better than anything this world can offer. You get the good life, you get his kingdom, and you get put on mission to do everything you can while you're here on earth to go after the lost sheep. And they're in Cambodia, they're in other countries, and they're here in our community. People are enslaved to different forms of slavery wherever you go. And it's your mission as a Christian to bring about the Father's freedom. 
The worship team's gonna come up here. My closing challenge as we, as we enter into to, to commune with our God is this. Lots of different practical things you could do and steps you could take. You can Google that. Um, what I want you to wrestle with is, are, are you seeking first his kingdom? Or are you living your, your life to live the comfortable life? Are you using your resources to advance his kingdom? What are you doing with your life? God has an answer to human suffering. First, the cross, and then two, the second coming. First, he offers a way for freedom and repentance in the now. And then two, for all those who are oppressed and who face injustice, there will come a day where people run to the hills and pray that the rocks would fall on them rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. It's a message modern ears don't like to hear, but let me tell you something. That is good news. There is a day Jesus eradicates evil. That is good, good news. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this church would be a church that seeks your kingdom, that we um, would not get caught up pursuing just the the stupid things of this life. And I pray for forgiveness uh, on behalf of, of the church. I pray for forgiveness for me. Um, it is so easy, so easy to get caught up in stuff. And we just pray that in, in our times of singing to you and worshiping you, that you would fill us um, with your, your, your spirit. But more importantly, we want the same heart. We want the heart of the Father in our lives. We want to, to care about the things that you care about, and we want to hate the things you hate. Lord, be with us and move us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.